Hello, I'm Eric Holdeman, and this is Disaster Zone, a podcast about emergencies and disasters. Disaster Zone will bring you interviews and commentaries about all aspects of disasters, from what causes them to how people and organizations are dealing with their impact. This podcast is being sponsored by Dynamis, a leading provider of information management software and security solutions. You can find them at dynamis.com. Welcome to the Disaster Zone podcast. I'm Eric Holdeman, your host. With me today is Norris Cunningham with Stoll Keenan Ogden SKO, and is a partner uh, with that firm, and he's coming from Indianapolis, Indiana today. We will be talking about the challenge of integrating emergency preparedness into the operations of the wide variety of facilities that provide care for our aging population here in the United States. Welcome to the show, Norris. Uh, thank you, Eric. Welcome. Uh, I appreciate being here. And Norris, uh, we were chatting before this. We talked about acronyms. So we're acronym-free. So if you use one, you got to define it. And this your area of expertise, perhaps not everyone's area of expertise. And there are some international folks that listen to this podcast, so don't think of it just in the you know, United States context. Uh, per se, don't make that assumption, I guess. So, Norris, thanks for joining me and being here on the Disaster Zone podcast. And we chatted briefly. You have a great background. I'll give our listening audience a quick summary of who you are, your background, and areas of expertise when it comes to emergency preparedness for the wide variety of facilities that provide, I call it elder care. There might be a better term than that. that these are parents, grandparents, and perhaps even ourselves in the future. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Eric. So I, I, I'm an attorney. I've been practicing law for uh, 27 years now. Um, and I mainly provide legal services to healthcare providers, but in particular, uh, I provide legal services to uh, senior living uh, facilities and senior living companies um, really throughout the U.S. I've been uh, fortunate to um, represent uh, senior living providers in, in about 15 states uh, over the years, doing both regulatory work for them as well as um, uh, litigation. Uh, I'm a trial lawyer, so I've represented them in um um, personal injury cases, but also represented them in regulatory issues um, uh, with, the, with the government. Um, and of course, the regulations that I talk about um, also include um, regulations related to emergency preparedness, uh, planning and, impl and implementation for those, um, uh, for those uh, senior living facilities. But uh, prior, in terms of background, prior to attending law school, um, I was actually on active duty in the United States Air Force. Um, I was a medical service corps officer, and my principal duty early on in my career was as the regional coordinator for the National Disaster Medical System. Uh, I know you're probably familiar with NDMS, um, but, but for your listeners, uh, NDMS is um, a, a disaster medical system established by the federal government that provides uh, personnel, equipment, supplies, um, uh, uh, with uh, civilian hospitals and medical providers uh, to make sure that resources are directed where they're needed whenever there's a natural disaster 
a man-made disaster, terrorist attack, and, and those kinds of things. Any situation where uh, essentially local and state resources might be um, uh, uh, taxed, uh, overtaxed actually uh, during a disaster, the, the NDMS allows for um, other critical uh, supplies and personnel to, to get to that disaster site, that disaster zone, uh, to be able to um, alleviate some of those overwhelmed resources um, on the state and local level. Uh, so I helped to coordinate uh, the NDMS in the Midwest region um, from um, about 1989 until about 1991. Um, in 1991, I found myself in Saudi Arabia during the, um, the first Gulf War. Uh, so um, uh, 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 so I, I, I uh, moved on to uh, another more uh, traditional military wartime role uh, after that. But I spent a lot of time with NDMS. Also spent 17 years in the Indiana Air National Guard. And you probably know that one of the principal responsibilities of, of um, guardsmen, both Air Guard and Army Guard, um, folks is to be available uh, for local and state disasters when uh, they um, when they occur. You can be called up both by the uh, the, the president in a, in a federal emergency, but also uh, called up by the, the governor uh, of a particular state um, whenever there are local disasters and, and, and situations. So um, I spent 17 years in the Guard. Uh, and during that time, as a matter of fact, I was called to active duty um, uh, uh, on 9-11 uh, as a result of um, uh, of those terrorist attacks, was on active duty for about four and a half months. I had to leave my legal career uh, uh, on hold for a period of time um, while I was uh, working there. And then also got called up for six uh, weeks during Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Um, I found myself in um, uh, Mississippi and in New Orleans uh, helping with the um, uh, with the response to um, the uh, multiple disasters that uh, that happened in the wake of uh, Katrina. And all of that led to um, my going to law school, being focused on uh, uh, healthcare providers, but also in the context of the work for healthcare providers, being focused on uh, helping with emergency preparedness and planning in any way that I could. And that folks, is what makes his mother proud, <laughs> right? Uh, well, I appreciate that. Hey, so uh, our careers almost overlap there in the military. So uh, I'd mentioned again before the show started that uh, I was at 4th Army. And 4th Army was the 7th state region, included Indiana. And I was a chief of contingency plans and worked on what folks uh, is called military support civil authorities, which is exactly... Uh, what Norris talked about when he talked about NDMS and how FEMA would be the conduit to call that up. It goes to the Department of Defense. It used to be way back in the day, it would go to um, Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, who were those guys down there, Norris? The military guys. Um, boy, I've, I've been gone too long. They were the Army guys that took care of all the uh, deployment requests and that for active duty, but Force Comp, Forces Command. Yeah, Force yeah. Comp, Forces Command. Mm -hmm. I think they may still exist. All right, but enough of this military stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I advise all of you folks listening today, no matter what your age is, because it's going to impact you, your parents, grandparents. Start to understand what the different types of uh, 
care facilities are for older people. I mean, there's senior living, independent living, assisted living, skilled nursing care, and others. Can you, Norris, give a brief, uh, simple description for the different levels of care associated with all the above? If I've missed one, add that to the list. Now, I'll I'll just add uh, there's uh, over 55 housing you know communities. I'm I'm looking to buy into one of those myself. So yeah. Uh, well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll keep this pretty simple. And, and, and um, you mentioned sort of the broad categories of uh, let's call them senior living options that are that are out there. Um, the, the first that you mentioned, which is um, uh, one that most people aren't that familiar with, is independent living. Um, and uh, in independent living situations, folks are usually uh, on a campus, uh, living in an apartment or living in a, a you know sort of a bungalow home, um, and just sort of as the as the title describes, these are folks who are relatively independent, don't require uh, a lot of assistance, perhaps little or no assistance actually when it comes to their activities of daily living. Um, but they're better off being in a community um, with um, with older folks and where there is help uh, available to them to the extent that they um, that they may need it with um, small things. You know, nobody wants to have to mow the lawn uh, anymore. And, and so you can be in an independent living um, uh, environment where someone's going to take care of those um, those kinds of things, um, housekeeping things for you as well. Um, and, and then um, the other sort of next level of care, which we can actually sort of split into to two different aspects, are, are assisted living facilities. Most folks are familiar with assisted living. Um, and, and I will point out, Eric, that these that the nomenclature varies a little bit from state to state. But, but generally, what I'm what I'm talking about here in terms of the broad categories really do apply um, uh, across the board. Um, but assisted living facilities are typically either um, just, um, let's call them stepped up independent living, uh, some of them where um, there uh, are, are usually resident care assistants and people to be able to help folks out with some aspects of their daily living. Um, assisted living facilities um, can tend to um, uh, have folks who are there because they have health conditions or because they may have um, uh, some signs of early onset dementia and so need some, you know, memory care uh, type of environment. Um, uh, but then there's sort of a stepped up, uh, let's call it a stepped up assisted living uh, environment. Sometimes they refer to them as residential care facilities um, uh, as well, uh, where uh, there are um, increased needs for activities of daily living. The person may be on uh, a regular medicine regimen that they can't, um, you know, really do themselves. Uh, if, if you're arthritic, it's sometimes hard to open those pill bottles, right? Those kinds of things. And, uh, and so there's a sort of stepped up increased assisted living in, in that context. Those type of listed, uh, assisted living facilities typically have uh, regular nurses and qualified medication aides on, uh, on staff to be able to provide the type of care that's needed. And then the, the last one, um, sort of the, the largest uh, amount of care that's being provided to, to folks is at skilled nursing facilities. And that's for, for we call them nursing homes all the time. Um, but that's for people who really do need uh, quite a bit of care and have health conditions that require that they receive um, uh, essentially round the clock 
um, medical care and healthcare interventions for uh, for their particular needs. So those are kind of the broad categories uh, that exist. Now, some places will have all of those types, uh, those three types that I talked about uh, on one campus. Um, and those are typically referred to as CCRCs or continuing care retirement communities. Um, and those are places where you can go in initially, say, in independent living, and as your um, health may uh, decline as you get older, you might move to assisted living and then from assisted living uh, into skilled nursing uh, if, um, if you require that. Um, but um, hopefully, obviously, we always hope that people will um, go into an independent living environment and be able to stay in that uh, situation as, as long as possible. Okay. And, um, you know, my mother was, went through the, all of those steps uh there and that uh well assisted no it wasn't assisted it was the um independent living type of thing she had to ring a bell uh before 10 <clears> o'clock <throat> in the morning so they knew that she was okay that's all they yeah press a button yeah. that those types of um things I, this was not a question i put down um for you but i know you can answer it in Ooh. my city where i live used to live i should say forty thousand people population there's been three um, senior living of various varieties facilities built in the last three to four years. There's an explosion of these facilities, I think, at least we're seeing it here in the Pacific Northwest. Can you comment on that? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we the the uh, boomer population um, that I think you probably belong to, right, is 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 a proud member, a proud member. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, they, up until the millennials came along, they um, boomers were the largest um, generational cohort that we had in this country. Um, in many respects, they still are. And and so it, it should not surprise anyone that we, we've seen an increase in um, sort of the, the, the footprint, if you will, of senior living communities around the country, because we just have a lot of people in the boomer space uh, now who are who are needing that level of, um, of of care? So we we really should not be surprised that we are seeing more and more uh, of those. And and um, it'll be interesting because um, my my generation um, Generation X uh, that followed um, you Boomers, um, we are sandwiched between uh, Boomers and Millennials, the two largest cohorts that there are. So um, uh, it, it's going to be interesting to 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 find out. Uh, 15 years from now, if we have, um, if we are at least for a time overpopulated in terms of the number of uh, senior living beds that we have around the country, um, because um, uh, my generation is not nearly as large as yours. Well, you know, boomers are never going to die, so uh, we'll be around a long, long time. <laughs> yes, I, I, um, I, I think that's probably true that you all have believed that for a very long time. <laughs> I... Yes, that's right. But we don't want to work. At least a lot of us don't want to work. But I'm I'm still working here. Okay. The other thing, I, I, it's just key. People, there's a segment of our hmm, nation population that don't like government, don't like rules, regulations. But are there national or state or both laws, regulations that establish what's the appropriate level of care for these facilities? And maybe there's even local regulations. 
Yeah, so there are. I I um I, I will tell you that that nursing home regulations and, and laws obviously, as many things do, vary from state to state in some respects. Um, but they all sort of fit under um, the larger umbrella, regulatory umbrella of of what's referred as the uh, Federal Nursing Home Reform Act of 1987. That was passed. Uh, into law in 1987 as part of the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 87. I say that only because many people will hear lawyers and others refer to the OBRA regulations uh, for nursing homes, and that's what they're referring to. The Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act, OBRA of 1987, uh, included as part of it the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act, which really sort of um, changed, I would even say almost revolutionized um, uh, the regulatory framework for nursing homes throughout the United States. And it basically set minimum standards that all nursing homes who receive federal dollars, and by federal dollars, I mean are participating in either Medicare or Medicaid, which is quite frankly 98, 99% of all, uh, of all facilities. Um, but it established these minimum standards uh, that nursing homes had to comply with in order to uh, continue to participate in in the federal program, and and basically said to the states, listen, you can make these requirements stricter, but you can't loosen them at all. These are the minimum, absolute minimum standards uh, uh, for for compliance um, and and for participation in, in in Medicare, and 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 that really does establish the the way in which the nursing homes have to go about operating their facilities for the benefit of um, the, the residents who are there. Um, and these were um, really much stronger measures, I think, than people had seen uh, previously uh, around uh, nursing home care and treatment. Okay. And um, what keeps states and local jurisdictions from regulating adult care facilities? Um, well, I, I would I would actually posit as somebody who works for um, health care providers, for nursing home providers um, uh, in, in the industry, I would actually tell you that there's not much that keeps them from regulating them because um, this is one of the most regulated industries, uh, long-term care, senior living. It's one of the most regulated industries in the world, quite frankly, in terms of total number of regulations that apply um, only the nuclear um, power industry is more regulated uh, than uh, than the nursing homes. Uh, so um, I, I would I would say that there's really not much um, other than the will to do so that really keeps any state or a local jurisdiction, um, any state in particular from regulating um, uh, adult care, nursing homes, uh, assisted living facilities. They really are very highly regulated. Okay. Is there any state that uh, stands out as doing an exceptional job from a regulation standpoint that has um, you know, oh, the uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, um, I, I, in, in my experience, I've been doing it a long time. I can't say that there are any that are head and shoulders better than the others. I think that there are others, there are some that have um, regulatory uh, frameworks and, and, and regimes that that tend to um, uh, catch more problems, uh, if, if you will, uh, than, than others. But again, 
the the overregulation sort of set the minimum standards. Most states uh, have adopted those. Uh, they may here and there on the margins uh, have some requirements that are that are a bit stricter than others. For example, you have a number of states, uh, um, uh, particularly in the South, that have uh, minimum contact hours between nurses and residents um, uh, 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 to to make sure that 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 uh, residents are being seen. When I say residents, I'm referring to nursing home patients. Um, uh, but to make sure the residents are being seen on a, on a routine basis. Uh, other states just basically say, um, my state, Indiana, is one of them that says, um, yeah, listen, you there are no minimum requirements in terms of hours of contact, but you have to make sure that you're consistently meeting the needs of the residents, right? And, and so while there isn't a, an, an actual numerical um, uh, 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 quotient or something attached to that standard um, the way some states have. It basically says we can walk in, inspect you, survey you to see if you are actually meeting these residents' needs and have sufficient staff to be able to do that. So the regimes vary from state to state, but I, I would I would say that they they all pay attention to the to the minimum uh, because they have to. Uh, and then some states in in different areas may have some um, uh, you know, marginally stricter requirements that uh, that apply. But generally, um, they're all working off the same sheet, so to speak. Okay. All right. And I, I should have asked this earlier. Uh, in the military, if you're a commissioned officer, a lot of times people want to know, well, were you ROTC? Were you, um, you know, West Point or Officer Candidate School, OCS? But Attorneys all want to know where the attorney came from. So where did you get your law degree? Was it so, all state? Yeah. Uh, so um, uh, from uh, Indiana University. I'm a, a graduate of the um, uh, Robert H. McKinney uh, School of Law in Indianapolis. Um, uh, and uh, in 1996, uh, I also have uh, a master's degree in healthcare administration from Central Michigan University. I got that while I was in the in the military, uh, actually, uh, and that's actually how I ended up in the Indiana Air Guard. When I got off of active duty, I still had a commitment to the Air Force as a result of the master's degree that they were kind enough to pay for, and and so I fulfilled that commitment. Um, required me to be in the guard for an additional. Uh, six years. I liked it so much. I stayed 17. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, so so yeah. So I have a, 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 a undergraduate degree from Aurora University. I have a, a, a master's degree from Central Michigan University and a law degree from Indiana University. Um, my uh, brother once joked that I was trying to collect uh, a degree from all of the Big Ten states. Yeah, I so. was going to say you have diversity in in states anyway, right? Okay. Yes. Okay, uh, well, it's one thing to have regulations. I've written a lot uh, about building codes as they are associated with residents and whether it's seismic or I've, I've got folks at a podcast, I'm trying to get one here, someone who regulates um, seismic uh, construction for California for soft story. They'll be coming up soon. But it's inspections that many times make the real difference. You have the greatest you know, standards that I would use the um, recent Turkey-Iraq earthquake. They had pretty good um, 
building codes, but inspections is where it's at to keep the standards up. So what can you tell us, Norris, about the need and status of inspections in general, since maybe that can vary widely from state to state? Um, interestingly, in, in some respects, uh, you know, I would, I would certainly say that the, that, that the quality of the inspections or surveys as they're typically called in, in the context of, of long-term care, we refer to these, um, inspections as, as surveys. Um, the surveys are conducted by state agencies, um, and these state agencies, uh, usually it's the department of health or, or whatever the health uh, care regulatory entity is uh, in a in a given state. Um, that agency is charged with um, inspecting, surveying nursing homes, a minimum under the federal standards of every 15, once every 15 months. Um, at a minimum, they can be inspected more often than that, depending on on what the uh, what the surveyors find uh, when they're when they're at the facility. But they're surveyed a minimum every 15 months to determine if they're in compliance with all of the federal and state standards that apply. So that would be those related to, to clinical care, those related to dietary, it would be um, the physical plant uh, of the facility. There are separate, um, as they refer to them as life safety uh, code inspections. And those are, those are um, uh, separate surveys that speak to or are focused on the physical plant, uh, um, mainly of the building, while the the more routine annual survey every 15 months is focused on operations uh, in particular, clinical operations in, in particular. But this, these mechanisms, these survey mechanisms, have as part of them uh, citations that can be enacted, fines, which are referred to as civil monetary penalties, uh, that a facility can be subjected to uh, if they are uh, found to to not be in compliance uh, with the with the regulations, so um, I, I would say that at least in the context of of the regulatory framework and the inspection framework that exists, um, they are they are looked at rather routinely. And and facilities that have problems, there is a mechanism for uh, placing them sort of on a on a special list. It's literally called the special focus list. Um, uh, so that they are inspected on a more routine basis until um, until they're found found to be in uh, in compliance. So it's that space, if you will, of the regulatory inspections and those outcomes uh, that really end up taking up quite a bit of my time in in representing uh, healthcare providers. Okay, all right. Well, this has been great, North. Um, we're about halfway through, so we're going to take a quick break right now for this message and we'll be right back this podcast is being sponsored by cobra an emergency management software solution cobra provides a cloud-based eoc software that is intuitive collaborative and affordable visit cobrasoftware.com and we are back and we're talking today with norris cunningham who's with sko and he's a partner there and if you've been listening the first half of this we know already that norris knows a lot about what he's talking about so uh, i always like informed guests and uh, you're on the top of the heap there so uh, you i know you pay attention to it i pay attention i'm always looking for disaster stories and we've some seen some horror stories when it comes to the impact to medical or nursing facilities when disasters strike 
Yeah, I recall one in Florida that had residents as a photo walking through floodwaters in the home they were living in. It's kind of like they're in the living rooms, family setting, uh, and the residents are walking through the these floodwaters. And it was so bad, I thought, is this has this picture been photoshopped? Because it, <coughs> I, I couldn't believe it because it seemed just very ordinary. So uh, what are some of the disaster issues that you've come across in your tenure in in the business and do you remember that picture i'm talking about that's yeah i do and I, I if i'm right i think you're referring to um uh, hurricane irma uh in florida in 2017 um this is probably the photos you're talking about because they had a, i think they had about 45 uh nursing homes um that uh had to be evacuated uh because of irma and uh, I think about 3,500 residents, and and uh, they had an extreme amount of flooding um, that required those evacuations. And so, yeah, you did have this, this situation where um, you 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 know literally saw residents sort of um, uh, wading through those that could walk uh, through um, uh, floodwaters that that were um, ankle even knee deep in, uh, some of the, uh, in, in some of the facilities. So, uh, so that is, um, I think that's a pretty good example. Uh, the first one that really sort of comes to mind for me, because I was, I, you know, I mentioned to you that I got called to active duty, uh, during, uh, Hurricane Katrina, um, uh, while I was in the guard. And so I spent time down in, in, in Mississippi and, 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 um, and New Orleans. And, uh, I'm reminded of, um, what Hurricane Katrina wrought, if you will, with regard to nursing homes and the evacuations. I, I don't know if you remember the um, trial of the two nursing home operators in um, uh, in 2006 related to Hurricane Katrina. There are 34 residents who died um, because the um, nursing home made the decision to shelter in place rather than try and move uh, their very, very ill residents. And, and to be fair to them, they had a number of folks and, and not enough equipment to be able to safely, they believed, move these residents to uh, to another location. And and so they tried to ride out the, the, the hurricane and the floodwaters um, uh, at the facility in place. 34 residents drowned um, as a result of it. Just a, a, a huge tragedy. And um, the, these individuals, the two owners, uh, husband and wife, were put on uh, trial, actually, charged with 34 counts of negligent homicide as a result of their deaths. Um, a good friend of mine uh, who I've um, acted as jury consultant for me in a number of cases around the country uh, uh, acted as a jury consultant for the Manganos when they were charged. And, uh, and, and frankly, I was relieved when they were acquitted. Uh, and I say that. Um, uh, not because what happened wasn't absolutely horrible, but it just it seemed to me that um, to charge these people criminally when they were trying to make the best decisions that they could uh, at the time uh, seemed seemed a bit extreme, uh, quite quite frankly. Uh, now, one can argue, and I think that there are some legitimate concerns about uh, whether they had properly um, uh, exercised, if you will, and and understood their own disaster plan, um, which I think is part of what really led to uh, a lot of those, uh, the, the issues that they had. Um, now, I'll give you an example uh, of that. Uh, they, they noted that um, 
that the Manganos had had essentially failed to uh, follow uh, the emergency plan that they had put into uh, that they had and that they had put into effect. And, and um, uh, as a result of that, uh, you know, they they said that a lot of these residents were unable to escape. They didn't notify or didn't have a, a, a an entity designated as the one that would um, move residents uh, right in terms of transportation and and those kinds of things. All the things that you know and I know as as someone involved in disaster preparedness is really key, right? Having that information in advance um, was it negligent, and, yes, um, and, but it certainly didn't would, rise to privilege. They would add the competition issue. They weren't the only ones needing to move people, even if they'd had all that. It's kind of like that is exactly right. The emergency fuel contract, but when everyone needs fuel or everybody needs to be able to move a nursing home, that's, that's they're all busy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, there's no doubt about that. I, I, I think given the size and the, the scope of the Katrina disaster, um, one can, you know, question whether or not uh, any of the um, uh, uh, contacts and entities that they had you know, sort of designed or, or built into their plan uh, as the way that they were going to uh, to move residents, it's unlikely that those folks necessarily would have been uh, involved. The difficulty there is that, and I think it's probably what upset the local prosecutor that led to the charges, um, was that they, they just didn't execute the plan at all, yeah. right? And and um, if you have a written evacuation plan and you don't follow it, you're probably asking for trouble in one respect or another, right? Um, and, and, and so there, I thought, was a real difficulty. Another one that comes to mind um, really from around that time, um, uh, you know, so following Hurricane Katrina, there was Hurricane Rita that hit um, in, in Texas, and there were a number of uh, residents for, uh, from an assisted living uh, facility that were being moved via bus uh, from one up. location to another. They and, were executing and, their plan. They were executing their plan. Now, the only problem was um, that bus caught fire and um, and 23 of the residents died on Interstate 45 in Texas um, because there were a number of issues uh, with the company uh, that was being utilized. Um, there are huge maintenance violations associated with the bus uh, that was being utilized. Um, there was oxygen and, um, bottles being used on the bus right right i mean it, it is it was a perfect storm of of unpreparedness quite frankly uh that that led to what was really a, a horrific uh situation that bus owner and operator was charged criminally i think as he should have been um given the terribly poor maintenance history that was found on this um with regard to this bus um and you know, there's some question because there was not a mandatory evacuation, although local yeah. officials had strongly urged evacuation. There was some question about whether or not they actually should have moved these people. Um, and, and, and so, you know, those are issues that, yeah. again, part of having a very good emergency preparedness plan is you, you have a framework for how you make those decisions, right? Um, so that it is let is it's less sort of left up to uh, up to chance and in, in an individual situation, you're you're executing these decisions based on a framework and based on um, uh, sort of pre uh, preset criteria 
uh, for when is when it is a good time or a, a necessary time to move. I'll, I'll give you another minor uh, example of all this is we had an actual, this is like 1995, so way back there, I'm at State uh, Emergency Operations Center and there was a tsunami warning. So this wasn't a watch or that, there's a warning for the Washington coast and there's a city of mm -hmm. Aberdeen there. And uh, the warning was issued and a nursing home contacted the 911 center and said, should we evacuate? And the, the center said, yes, because it's an, a physical warning type of thing. Well, it turns mm -hmm. out there was not a, a tsunami coming and they canceled the warning, but they had already started evacuating. Nothing happened bad other than they fired the 911 operator initially mm -hmm. because he he or she had acted on the information that was available and provided the best recommendation he or she could. They, yeah. they were reinstated in that. But it, disaster is not clear-cut, black-and-white type of thing. So um, That is that is for sure. And the, the last one I would mention, though, in, in terms of, um, you know, the, the experience with this, and we'll, we'll talk about Kirkland in particular later on, but, but of course, COVID, right? Um, because we know that... that um, uh, elderly individuals in nursing homes with, you know, multiple health conditions, comorbidities, as, as we typically call them, um, they bore the brunt of the deaths related to COVID um, really sort of throughout the, um, uh, uh, you know, throughout the pandemic, the early part of the pandemic. And, and um, fortunately, we are able to, to sort of stem that over, over time. But, but quite frankly, um, that was a huge, huge uh, issue um, because uh, so many of the early deaths, something like 60 plus percent of the early deaths, uh, the first um, five or six months of the pandemic were were mainly nursing home residents, whether you're talking about the situation in Washington or whether you're talking about uh, New York as the later uh, sort of epicenter uh, of, of COVID deaths. And, and we now know, or at least we found out that, that New York state was probably um, uh, grossly undercounting uh, the number of nursing home deaths um, that were related to COVID in the early part of uh, of, of 2020. So, yeah. you know, we've we've um, you're always going to find. I, I, I know you know this, uh, Eric, that those who are the most vulnerable are the ones who are going to be at the most at risk, right? Whenever you have a disaster situation, yeah. um, man-made or or otherwise. We can name those populations, the elderly, the very young, and yes. the economically disadvantaged. You know, who couldn't get out of New Orleans? Those that didn't have a car, didn't have the means, didn't have a right. family or friends outside of the city. They had no place to go. So. That's exactly right. Um, and it, it is. It's going to be um, the elderly. It's going to be the impoverished. It's going to be um, uh, the disabled. Um, those populations are always going to be the most at risk uh, when we have these uh, these types of of, uh, of disasters. OK, well, I touch on just regulations and inspections again. What is missing that's slipping through the cracks? Is there anything there that in Norris's experience, they say, hey, and I'll, I'll give you an example to this, um, the fire code. I had a fire marshal tell me this. He said, you know, every line in the fire code is written in blood. <laughs> that, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's not established until there's a loss. And typically it's a loss of life that motivates people to close 
a gap in the fire code. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's unfortunate. I think in, in large part that's that's true. I, I would uh, I would say, and I, I think you know, as, as somebody who's got a lot of experience, you you probably agree as well um, that that um, it is it is it's difficult to to completely anticipate right how things are going to go in any type of situation. They're all um, uh, you know we're all sort of responding, trying to get as much sense of situational awareness as we can. And and it becomes much easier for for um, uh, for for uh, issues to pop up and for things to slip through the cracks. And so, in, in assessing after the fact, we we can determine how we can certainly certainly make things better. Um, so there is going to be a lot of that sort of written in blood, as you say, when it comes to how we get better about things. Um, but listen, we we do need to focus more on anticipating, right? And 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 anticipation. And and uh, and there, I I think is is where um, the cracks begin to develop, um, and 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 where I think there are some issues. Uh, so in in the wake of Katrina, um, there was a lot of focus um, uh, that that started to be placed with regard to nursing home preparedness. Now, from a regulatory standpoint, we talked about the regulations. It's always been the case that they're required to have emergency plans and and um, uh, 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 and, and, and to know what they're going to do in the context of, of different types of, of emergencies. Um, but in, in 2012, the um, uh, Office of Inspector General for, um, for Department of Health and Human Services, that's the organization that's really responsible for um, uh, promulgating a lot of these regulations that we're talking about that apply uh, to nursing homes. But they released a report that noted in particular where they thought there are a lot of gaps in uh, nursing home preparedness. Um, you know, things like um, emergency plans lacking um, sort of basic relevant information. Um, who's the bus company and what's the number, right? Um, where are you gonna get ambulance services for those uh, residents that can only be transported via ambulance because of the nature of their, uh, of their healthcare condition? Um, one of the things that they noted, the OIG noted, for example, was only about half of, um, so nursing homes were required as part of the regulations to have these checklists um, that would account for how they were going to do their job. And they noted that only about half of the necessary tasks were actually accounted for on a lot of these um, uh, checklists. They found that there was very little um, uh, or even no collaboration with local emergency management. Uh, which is really key. I think one of the things that undid the Manganos in the um, in the Hurricane Rita, uh, I'm sorry, Hurricane Katrina situation, um, was that there wasn't um, that they didn't know who to call uh, right away, and and um, and that that quite frankly is not something that should ever be true because those are those are the kind of numbers and that's the kind of information that you have absolutely can and and should plan for. Um, there there. Uh, they noted that there wasn't a lot of planning around resident acuity in particular, as I mentioned a moment ago. What do you do with people who can only be moved by ambulance? If you've got, uh, if your nursing home has ventilated patients, right? Patients who are on ventilators or on breathing machines, um, they can really only be transported by ambulance um, for the most part, right? Um, because of the, the particular needs that are there. And um, uh, or as we call them in the military, you probably remember AM buses. Um, they, they're very, very large 
uh, buses that were um, uh, retrofitted, retrofitted to essentially act as uh, as buses. Where are those AM buses, if there are any in the in the local uh, community, where are they located? Um, are you near a military installation that may be able to help um, federal installation with those types of things? Right. Uh, it's it's all of those kinds of um, uh, of issues that uh, that they were finding was was really not there. Uh, and and uh, and and while things have improved, um, there were some regulations that came out as a result of that 2012 report in 2014 that that basically started to rewrite um, how nursing homes were to look at these particular issues um, and require that they actually uh, address them in a, in a more comprehensive uh, way. Um, but the, the problem there, I think, um, that we saw in the context of, of, um, of COVID when it happened uh, was that um, there was, um, and you probably heard the term paper plan syndrome before, um, uh, well, I, a, I, I use the term uh, shelf art. <laughs> I, <laughs> I've got a plan, and I'm screwing up. I got my thing on a pedestal, and uh, you put it on the shelf, and there it is. And right, right, plan. and and so you 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 feel protected, right? Simply because you have written down this plan on paper, put it on the shelf, and think that all I need to do is grab this, uh, and I'm and I'm ready to go. Uh, that's not true. Um, and um, that plan has to be exercised. That plan has to be assessed in, in, um, in, in a, as, a, as real a situation as you can make it so that you've got some sense of how this is going to flow um, uh, when, uh, when uh, a real disaster actually strikes. You know, having been in the military, that one of the things we do in the military is exercise all the time, right? I mean, we're yeah. we're focused on making sure that we can do our jobs when a situation happens by having practiced doing our jobs many, many times before and, that. And I would say the biggest item missing out in the civilian side of the world is training. <laughs> that yes. we generally we've got plans, and they are get exercised occasionally, but it's rare that we train the people up on what the plan says, what their duties are. And I, I, I love checklists um, for those types of situations. Yeah, no, I think that, uh, that, that, that is that, that the key is always um, to not just have a plan, uh, but to have exercised and assessed, right. Whether in a, in a, in, in a relatively real world situation, that uh, plan is adequate uh, to meet the needs that you have. And, and, and quite frankly, um, putting a plan together and putting it on a shelf and just bringing it out when the disaster strikes, that's not the time to figure out if there are holes in it, right? Yeah. Or gaps. Okay, so you know, we're going to keep going here. This, I think, will be mm -hmm. the longest podcast I've ever done, but it's all good stuff, so I'm, I'm good with it. So <clears throat> sometimes I tell people, you know, we have standards. And people say, well, we meet all the national and state regulatory industry standards. And uh, I got this in the maritime industry also. I, I, that's where I came up that, yes, yeah, so you're doing the absolute minimum required is what mm. I call that. I don't know. You want to react to that? You're doing the absolute minimum required by meeting all the standards? Yeah, well, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I to some extent, it's on the government to make sure that those minimum standards are set are set in a way right that that um, compliance means that you are compliance with those minimum standards means that you are in fact um, providing the level of service that is needed to um, uh, to meet the needs of the particular individuals. And so I don't I don't I never have a problem with minimum standards so long as those minimum standards are sufficient uh, yeah. to be able to 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 meet the need that 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 happens to be there. Um, and 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 so and that's that, that's um, that's a shared responsibility between um, uh, government as the oversight entities, but the operators themselves uh, knowing and understanding uh, what it is they need to be able to do in, in, in order to meet the needs of their residents. And then and then placing that really at, at the forefront of of what it is they um, they uh, vary in business for. At the end of the day, they're in business to take care of these folks. Uh, and, and so in partnership with the government, they need to make sure that that whatever standards, minimum standards are set, those are always sufficient to be able to um, uh, to meet the needs that are there. OK. All right. Um, looking at my list here, I just want to say you talk about evacuating a nursing home. I've only been involved in one situation where we evacuated one single nursing home. We had a winter storm as bad as long extremely uh, cold mobility, you know, driving around was difficult and the uh, health department was called upon to help evacuate one nursing home. And it became an all hands on deck to evacuate one nursing home. So mm. this is not yeah. easy folks when you hear that, trust me, I've lived through that one. And the other one, short, quick story is a hospital here in the region wanted to try cogeneration using their hospital generators. And they had big generators. And they had the electrical utility there and the, all the maintenance people, and they were going to switch over to the generators and try this cogeneration uh, aspect using the hospital generators. Mm -hmm. So they switch over generators. Generators would not start. And they went to switch back to commercial power, and they could not switch back to commercial power. That led mm -hmm. to a total evacuation of the hospital, it was, became a mass casualty type of event with ambulances from all over the region lined up and moving patients to other hospitals. It was, yeah, it was yeah. a mess, and that was a well-planned event. <laughs> wow, <laughs> type of thing. I always use the phrase "seemed like a good idea at the time," but I bet they don't do that one again. Okay, right. Let's you you tease this a little bit. You had, recently had an article about the Life Center in Kirkland, Washington was first place that COVID showed up here uh, in an institution in the United States and due to unfortunate deaths of two residents. What can you share about that as a message for similar facilities uh, that could become liable due to uh, a disaster? Yeah, and uh, it, you know it's it's important to point out that they that the that the recent trial um, that involved life care centers of of Kirkland, um, it involved the deaths of two residents, but of course there were there are many more residents who died um, as a result of of um, of COVID uh, in in that facility. Um, but but here's uh, so um, for those that don't know, the outcome of the trial was a verdict in favor of the of the facility, a, ver a verdict in favor of of Life Care Center of of Kirkland. Uh, 
and and um, it's easy for me to say I represent the industry, but I think that that was the right outcome, uh, quite frankly. And and I think that it was the right outcome in large part because uh, the the defense's position, um, which I agree with wholeheartedly, was essentially, listen, COVID was new, um, brand new. Nobody, we didn't know. We just didn't know what we were dealing with. There wasn't any guidance that said, you can't in February of, of 2020 that you can't let people come into nursing homes. We, we, we actually here where I work day to day had uh, a pandemic guide uh, for the future for business. And that early period, we called it the period of uncertainty. Yeah. Yes. And and, and I think that's that's a, an, an, um, an accurate title for it, because there was this period of uncertainty in February in March of, of uh, 2020, no one knew, for example, that asymptomatic individuals um, could could pass on the virus, right? And and um, and, and and so to, um, I I think the conclusion that the jury reached, and I think it was the right conclusion, was essentially: listen, nobody knew enough to protect these residents in the way that that. Um, uh, that we would have wanted. There just wasn't enough information about this um, virus. Uh, here's my concern, though, for the for the industry. W we should not believe that that's that that same outcome um, will happen the next time there is a pandemic and there is an improper response on the part of uh, of a senior care facility. And I say that because. Uh, I, I think jurors are going to charge us with the fact that this has now happened. And we know. That now we, we know. To, right? Yes. Now we know. We don't know at all. And we certainly don't know when the next pandemic is going to occur and what the virus is going to be. But we do know that there are some things that we need to make sure that routinely we have ready to go. Do we have an adequate supply of personal protective equipment on hand? Do we have um, a, uh, an understanding of where we can get additional personal protective equipment as quickly as possible? Um, uh, I, I, there are all of these sort of um, issues with regard to supply sources and things like that, issues of infection control, so that we, we are uh, doing a better job of infection control um, inside of the facility when there, when there are pandemic issues and, and so on. We are chargeable for all of those things now because we've lived through this and, and we've got some sense of, uh, of, of how we can better respond. And, 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 and jurors are going to charge us with that knowledge. Uh, and, and so um, we may not know everything about what the next situation is going to be, but there are a number of aspects that we can plan for in advance um, that we better make sure that we are planning for in advance because um, I don't think that they're gonna uh, give us that mulligan again. Yeah, I tell you, we've had our black swan pandemic. So you can't call it a black <laughs> swan the second time. <laughs> right, that's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. It's, 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 um, um, I, I think that you can classify it to use um, phrasing that we use in the military. Sometimes it's a known unknown at this point, right? Um, you don't know all the aspects of it, but you know that this thing is out there. This possibility exists. And so you need to plan as much as you can around um, what the response uh, needs to be or can be 
uh, in your given situation in your given community. Yeah, a lot of the planning that had been done was all pandemic flu based, and that was for a known disease, how it's being transmitted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's good planning, but the COVID virus didn't always behave like uh, a, a flu, the flu virus. So. Well, that's exactly right. And that's the difference between, I think that actually sort of actually adequately describes a known known, right, versus a known unknown now. Yeah. And, 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 and what we need to do or can do in the context of planning for those known unknowns. Uh, well, I just want to say one other thing before we close up here is uh, mm -hmm. I've worked on three pandemic after action reports for two cities and one county. And one of those cities was city Kirkland. And we did not look at life care center. Any of that is internal government after action report. I just want to say for the city of Kirkland, that was the best of the three. And I, they did as good a job as anybody could have done because they had plans in place. They had a competent emergency manager. They had excellent executive leadership. The council played their role appropriately um, as opposed to mucking it up. <laughs> Some, which happened in a lot of places where they, I, I say they, uh, the phrase was, it's, this is too important to leave to the professionals um, and became political. So city of Kirkland did a, a wonderful job with the pandemic. All right, so final thoughts there, North. If you could touch on, like I said, early in this um, podcast, people are going to have to select a, a facility in the future for either parents, grandparents themselves uh, type of deal. What advice do you have for them and then any final uh, thoughts before we close out? Yeah, so I, I, um, when it comes to selecting facilities, I, I would say that, that um, uh, if you Google the Nursing Home Compare, that's a website that's set up by um, the Center for Medicare Medicaid Services, CMS, uh, that patients, uh, uh, residents, and families um, can go to uh, to um, to get a lot of pretty good and useful information on nursing homes, how they've done in those surveys that we were talking about uh, earlier, um, and and, uh, and and how they're generally viewed um, from a regulatory standpoint. Um, each of the states uh, have, because it's part of the federal requirement, have what are called. Uh, a long-term care ombudsman, um, and um, one can Google the local ombudsman for your area, and if you've got a particular nursing home in mind, ask that ombudsman uh, about that uh, about that nursing home and about that that facility. Um, and and there are a number of different aspects there that, to to be concerned about. Um, uh, what what's their compliance like in the context of uh, of surveys? Um, what is their, um, you know, what is their history? What, um, uh, you know, are, are, are residents filing a number of grievances? If so, what are those grievances about? That type of information uh, can be found and is available on the nursing home compare site. In the context of them being disaster ready, um, when you go to a facility, and believe me, I recommend that no one ever place a loved one in a nursing home that they have not visited uh, themselves. Uh, but when you go to the facility, ask them some questions about, um, hey, do you have a disaster plan? How do you how how do you guys plan to move 
my mom or my dad if something uh, were to happen uh, and and this this facility had to be evacuated. How that's how's that going to be done? Um, and if they can point you to a plan and they can answer that question cogently, you're going to feel pretty good. If there's a lot of stuttering and hemming and hawing, you you might want to keep looking, right? I would um, say, see how long it takes them to retrieve a copy of the plan so yeah, they know where it exactly. is. I, I exactly. do that for schools. I tell parents, just go in and ask, I want, I want to see a copy of the plan and see how long it takes for them to retrieve. The other thing is asking, when was the last time this was exercised? And not a fire drill, not a fire drill. And were police fire involved in helping participate? Exactly. I think those are I think those are all good uh, ideas um, th that um, the that, I mean, questions that people can can utilize and, and, and can ask when they're uh, when they're shopping around for a facility. But listen, in, in terms of, of, of kind of final thoughts, I um, I'm reminded um, my grandfather was fond of saying, um, uh, and I'm sure others have heard this, you prepare for war in the time of peace. You don't prepare for war in the time of war. It's too late then, right? Um, and and so um, what I would say consistently is, um, and this is an exhortation to the industry, uh, similar to the uh, to the article that I wrote about Kirkland. Um, you must develop your plan. You must exercise that plan. You must uh, get all of the stakeholders in your plan involved in that exercise and in assessing the outcome of it so that you can revise it if you need to. All of those aspects are key to emergency preparedness and it is not enough to have a plan. It must be exercised, it must be assessed, it must um, include all of the relevant stakeholders uh, that you will need in order to um, accomplish uh, your um, mission of safely evacuating or safely dealing with any emergency that occurs. Yeah. And I'll just correct you on one thing uh, that you just said. I guarantee you, if you do all those things, there'll be something that needs to be updated in that plan. Oh, no, no, no <laughs> doubt. No, and, I, yeah. I, and I agree with that. I, I think at the end of the day, there are always going to be um, uh, uh, you know, things that, that sort of develop and that happen that you, you that you, you did not know it. or right or 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 plan for. Those gaps are going to exist. But again, the whole idea of exercising is so that you can minimize that That's as right. much as possible, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, you'll find things don't work. The phone number is no longer good. All, <laughs> those, all those things. So. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to say thank you to Norris Cunningham for being the guest here on the Disaster Zone podcast and setting a record for the length, longest Disaster Zone podcast, but it's been really excellent information. Well, I, I appreciate you having me on, Eric, and and, and I, I appreciate your podcast because quite frankly, um, this is the level of community involvement I think that we all need to have to make sure uh, that, um, that, that um, our loved ones, that we and our loved ones are safe um, in the event of uh, natural disasters and, and man-made situations as well. All right. Well, you know, people are living longer. Sometimes that means they cannot stay in their home, be it a house or apartment. And today we learned much more about the standards for facilities, caring for our loved ones, and maybe ourselves in the future, and how those facilities have regulatory responsibilities to the residents, 
for when disasters strike. So lastly, a reminder, everyone, be safe. Think about what you can do today to become personally better prepared for the next disaster. If you like this Disaster Zone podcast, please share it with your professional social media contacts. Thanks for listening and be safe. Tune in again soon for more information on all aspects of disasters. You can also check out the Disaster Zone blog at www.disaster-zone.com.